a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we get together on a daily basis to help break the illusion of consensus. Now, that may sound like a pretty, uh, you know, heavy thing. It's like, wow. (laughs) What exactly kind of consensus are we talking about here? I'm talking about the consensus that says you aren't smart enough to live your life and that you need experts, whether elected or otherwise, to tell you every little thing you should be doing. That's a false narrative, my friend, and that's what we're here to do. Challenge it, to engage in wrong think. And I appreciate you being a part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'll be telling you more about them as the show goes on, but let's, let's begin, first of all, with the question here. Has social media, combined with the ubiquitous smartphone, created a culture of egocentric people? Now, before you answer that question, I want you to hear what Jeff Minnick has to say. This is a piece he published on uh, Intellectual Takeout just a couple of days ago. And it points to egotism as the root of our troubles. And it actually makes a pretty strong case that just a little bit of humility is what can keep us rooted in reality. Jeff Minnick's article is titled Death by Selfie. And he says, in an article at the Daily Wire, Joseph Curl reports that 23-year-old Chinese crane operator Xiao Qiumi had 100,000 followers on social media, and yet she fell 160 feet to her death while filming herself on a giant crane. Now, she was the second woman to die in China in July by way of a fall while she was recording herself on camera. Now, he says, this horrific death set me to thinking about selfies. And he says, I don't mean the pictures we take with our cameras and phones. Rather, he says, I'm coining a new term, a noun for a certain type of self-obsessed people. And then he asks the question, have we become a world of selfies? The United States especially seems to be a nation overpopulated by egocentric citizens. And he asks, does our selfiness explain the arrogance we see in some people today? A conceit accompanied by contempt for others? And these questions raised another question, which is if it's true that too many people are selfies looking down their noses at those they regard as inferiors, could that high opinion of themselves explain the erosion, some might say the death, of our liberties and our culture? He says, perhaps it's time for some of our politicians, bureaucrats, and celebrities to check their egos at the door and focus instead on honesty, truth, and cooperation as a way of solving problems. Now, Jeff Minnick says many of our celebrities and politicians certainly appear to belong to the selfie tribe. Massive egos, self-promotion, and the firm belief that their ideas trump those of the supposedly illiterate masses. That's the very definition of narcissism. And he also says our long pandemic, for example, has brought us an entire cast of actors who pontificate on preventatives and cures to fight the Wuhan virus and who tell us to follow the science. 
But that science has taken a back seat to a lust for power and self-interest. Minnick says we're reminded that egotists regard themselves as the elite. In the article, The Dangers of Ego in Leadership from the executive training website Cashbox Coaching. Egoists see themselves as important and all-knowing. They rely on past accomplishments to bolster their present status. And we see the same primacy of self in less public figures, like the priest who breaks his vows to pursue sexual pleasure, or the mom who decides she needs to leave her husband and children and find herself, or the guy who's so offended by some innocuous comment on Facebook that he leads a charge to have the writer canceled. That's a pretty interesting thought. And, and it, it, it actually makes me stop and think, okay, how guilty am I of engaging in these behaviors? Because I know dang well I'm not innocent. Now, Jeff Minnick does say, of course, a strong sense of self is a positive good. He says, we all possess, possess ambitions and goals. We want money and prestige. We're pleased when someone compliments our children. So the healthy ego, the self with, its, with all its complexities and quirks, makes each of us unique individuals. He says, every day I encounter individuals who balance the desires of self with the needs of others, who give of themselves freely and cheerfully to their families, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Now, a cynic might contend they do so from egotism. Look at me! Look what a great guy I am! And there might be a bit of truth to that charge, but he says, generally what I perceive in them is self-sacrifice. Their needs take a backseat to the needs of others, and generally they seem happier for their altruism. But it's when we let slip the reins of control over the self that the real trouble ensues. In fact, he says, Google egotism dangers. You'll find such articles as 11 reasons a huge ego is your worst enemy. Five deadly kinds of ego that prey upon your success. Ego, one writer says, is one of the worst poisons. It can be more lethal to our well-being than anything else. Now, Jeff Minnick says, when I was teaching, I quickly learned that students could spot baloney faster than flies at a picnic. I soon gave up blustering my way past a question that had stumped me. Instead, I'd tell my class, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll try to find out. And he says, my self-esteem became less important, and I avoided giving some kid a bogus response. Being honest was also a whole lot easier than trying to skate past tough questions. So Jeff Minnick says, perhaps what many of us need, especially our leaders, is a strong dose of humility, particularly in regard to our public policy debates, whether conducted on the national scale or just among acquaintances. We might say, as did Socrates, I know that I know nothing. Admitting that we don't know everything is a splendid place to start fighting against the pitfalls of narcissism and an oversized ego. Now, I'm sharing this, it's, you know, I, I was going to save this to the end of the, the segment or the end of the, the hour, but for some reason this one grabbed me, and it's probably because I needed that message more than anybody. I was listening to a friend of mine, Dr. Marcy Campbell, talk about uh, responsible use of social media, and there were a couple things that she was talking about on her program that just really grabbed me. Uh, one of them was the idea of when we use social media, do we use it to send out this um, distorted or sometimes false message of what a perfect, flawless, enviable life we have? Now, I would bet you most people do not post a selfie or they don't post their dinner or they don't post, you know, uh, whatever with that in mind. 
But at the same time, I totally see what she's saying that uh, it can become that. And I've been I've been walking a little bit of a, a fine line myself in the past couple of months since my family and I relocated to southern Idaho. Um, I from a sense of gratitude, and I mean just deep gratitude of where we were able to find a home, where we were able to end up. I have shared a number of pictures on Facebook, particularly, um, of my backyard at sunset or my front yard at sunset or just, you know, little critters running around the yard and whatnot. And I'm realizing that uh, I got to be careful. I don't want to send the message of, hey, look how great and how perfect my life is. Even though at the very same time, I'm trying very hard to send a message of, I am so thankful to be where I am. I know there's a line in there somewhere. I guess that what I'm saying is I'm still kind of struggling to find it. So if you ever, if, if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, I've got a lot of friends, but I haven't maxed my Facebook account yet. I'm not that important. But if you ever see me posting things that, uh, that are going right in my life, I hope it comes through that I'm not posting this from the standpoint of, can you see how much better my life is than yours? Because I promise you, I have the same struggles, problems, insecurities, difficulties, and challenges that anybody is going to have. But at the same time, I really do want to express gratitude. I don't know. There's, maybe there's a better way than doing that. I mean, I, I'm open to ideas <clears throat> because I sure don't have all the answers. But I do believe what Jeff Minnick is saying about the idea that admitting that we don't know everything or at least bringing just a little slice of humility into our lives, that is the start of true greatness. And that's something that we ought to be working on, hopefully on a daily basis. You know, we we need to be working on becoming better people than we were yesterday. So I'll have a link in the show notes. You can check out this article from Jeff Minnick. Egotism, egotism and and status, that's what makes us compare ourselves to others looking for reasons why we're better than them, or in some cases, we are looking for reasons why they're better than us. Either way, it's a really destructive mindset, probably something we would be best not to indulge, but first we have to be aware of it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and I really wish you would visit my website... It's, uh, it's nice. It's neat. i got to tip my hat to my friend Kendall for uh, the excellent uh, web development work he did on it. But I want you to check out my sponsors. And in particular, I want you to click on the sponsor that's uh, listed there as Life Saving Food. And the reason I'm talking about this is if, if you have been a longtime listener, you know I am a big fan of self-reliance. I'm a fan of preparedness. If you call me a prepper, I'm not going to be offended. But this is a great time right now, while there is uh, little to no panic going on, to get yourself stocked up on food storage. 
Life-saving food is uh, is a great way to go about that. You don't have to buy a massive, you know, four-year supply or one-year supply for four people or whatever, you know, all at once. That's that's kind of intimidating to people. But if that's something you do want, they have it. If you're looking for a week supply, a month supply, or or smaller packages, they've got a great selection to choose from. Something that can fit your budget, no matter where you are right now. But most importantly, something that you'll be glad you did should times of need come. Looking around us at some of the uncertainties, that's probably a pretty safe bet. You know, I don't think anybody would ever regret (laughs) having put aside something for a rainy day. So go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Today's show notes for August 11th, 2021. Click on Life-Saving Food and see what they have to offer you. By the way, if you mention Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your promo code, they'll actually take 10% off at, uh, at your purchase. So you got that going for you, too. You know, so many of the challenges that we face right now are the result of things that have been politicized, meaning that they weren't always politicized, but they've become politicized. And so that has a lot of people looking for, well, who will save us? And I, I mean, no disrespect to those of you who are really diehard Trump supporters. But if you're looking for a politician, whether it's Donald Trump or whether it's, you know, anybody else to, to step in and save you. It may not be such a great idea. In fact, I want to share with you an, uh, an article here. This is a commentary from Isaac Morehouse from everythingvoluntary.com. Looking for a king. He says, populism is a mess. Constitutional attempts to restrict it are weak. To quote Mises, the planned chaos of governments is taking a toll. And he says, a lot of people seem to be searching more, for, searching more ancient traditions for sense and stability. They long for a clearly structured world that harmonizes with the hierarchies in nature and human nature. Some of them long for a king. Now he says, I respect the sentiment, but it eats its own tail. Understanding the problems of democracies and bureaucratically managed populist programs is important. More voices have a stake in controlling others. Having a stake in controlling others is not an effective way to curb control of others. It just feeds and fragments it. He says, I also appreciate the recognition of objective aspects of reality. As Thomas Sowell might say, we need a constrained vision that recognizes realities like scarcity ignorance, and natural human desires. We cannot wish away bad things or bad people. We cannot wish away differences between people, even those that seem to create uncomfortable inequalities in the outcomes of their lives. Isaac Morehouse says to do so is not only inhumane, it's deluded. It cannot succeed. And running counter the structure of reality will only end in more pain than what you seek to solve. Now, he says, I don't disagree with the idea of regality, the idea of a noble being with authority, respect, responsibility, and dominion. But he says, where it is misguided is when it seeks to find this in any earthly being outside of oneself. Now, hear what he's saying here. The calling of a human is to be and become that king. To provide the kind of leadership and structure to your family and voluntary relationships that you are the earthly king of your own mind, body, spirit, and domain. And to see this in another human being, or to see this in another human, rather than in yourself, is to abdicate your own duties and responsibilities. He says that's the same folly that would-be kingmakers see in the populist mobs. 
You cannot outsource your reign. You must find how to properly align it with God, other people, and reality. Isaac Morehouse says it's too easy to see the truth in the pattern of kingship and miss the application of that pattern. The pattern maps onto you, not onto anyone else. That feel like a big burden just got laid on your shoulders there? Your Majesty, <laughs> you are the one who has to act like a king? All right, I want to share a story with you then. Of uh, So what does it take to be a king? I had a mentor a few years ago, Andy, who uh, had this marvelous, marvelous speech called A Renaissance of Kings. And it was, it was a call to each one of us to live our lives as royalty. And I, and I want you to understand what that means. That doesn't mean with people waiting on us at our every beck and call, and that doesn't mean that only opulence and, you know, the finest things, the finest clothes and crowns upon our heads... What it meant was to become such high-quality individuals that we behave as a king would. And I remember, it was such a great speech. I mean, to this day, it still just, it sticks in my mind. One of the things he talked about in there that I have adopted as, as one of my driving principles in life is to stop seeing others as a foe to be vanquished and instead see them as a prize to be won. That doesn't mean, you know, to be won so that now I have control over you, but simply that they recognize their value. And to finish his speech, he would say, do you want to see how a king behaves? Do you want to see what a king looks like? And he showed us the the video, and I, I know the dad's first name was Rick. I'm sorry, I forget his last name. Rick has a son who, uh, Rick actually just passed away just a, a few weeks ago, but uh, um, this man had a son uh, very profoundly handicapped, as in, you know, completely disabled. He, he cannot walk, he cannot, you know, cannot speak, he can hardly do anything on his own. But his dad would take him with him and compete in uh, triathlons, like Ironman stuff. So he would sit there and, and put, uh, put this young man in a life jacket and with, you know, helpers and everything in a, in a raft, and he would swim the portion of the Iron Man that involved swimming, then would get out, and uh, let's see, what comes next? It's the bike, right? So they'd, they'd have a, a bicycle built for two, and Dad would ride his son for the entire part of the, the bicycle race, and then a special wheelchair that he would push his son in as they ran the marathon to, to finish, and I may have some things out of order here, but I will tell you that as that video played, and as you saw this man um, going to these extraordinary extremes of effort to, first of all, complete the race, but to do it with his son, his beloved son, who, by the way, is an adult. So we're talking, um, you know, this is this is an adult-sized body that he is carrying with him. And, you know, he'd carry him out of the water, you know, when, when it was time to, to finish the swim. To see this dad doing this, I mean, I, I looked around a couple of times when I was there, when I saw this speech given, and there was not a dry eye in the room. But Andy would finish the speech and he would say, that is how a king behaves. 
Now, I know that that sounds really noble and it sounds like, well, that's uh, here's your motivational speech for today. But I think when we understand what our own worth is in the eyes of God and just in, in, in our own eyes, when we understand our potential for goodness and personal greatness, not at the expense of others, but to bless the lives of others around us. I think that's when we really start to feel peace. That's when we really start to feel like we're in control of ourselves. And so rather than trying to control others, that's where we put our effort. That's where we put our energies. And you know what? It strikes me as that's a really healthy way to look at things. So I offer it for your consideration. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're one of my sponsors. And you know, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages or even just refinancing your existing mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience and the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Now, this is of extreme importance for my listeners in Utah. This is where you'll find the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So how do I know that things are getting serious? Well, I don't uh, immerse myself in the news headlines all that much, but I want to share with you just a quick video here. This is just the audio from a video from Senator Rand Paul. And keep in mind, this is a sitting United States senator who is uh, urging us to stand together and say absolutely not to those who would do further harm to our society, our economy, and our children because of the fear of COVID. Are you ready for this? Listen to what he has to say. It's time for us to resist. They can't arrest all of us. They can't keep all of your kids home from school. They can't keep every government building closed, although I've got a long list of ones they might keep closed or might ought to keep closed. We don't have to accept the mandates lockdowns and harmful policies of the petty tyrants and bureaucrats. We can simply say no, not again. Nancy Pelosi, you will not arrest or stop me or anyone on my staff from doing our jobs. We have either had COVID, had the vaccine, or been offered the vaccine. We will make our own health choices. We will not show you a passport. We will not wear a mask. We will not be forced into random screenings and testings so you can continue your drunk with power reign over the Capitol. President Biden, we will not accept your agency's mandates or your reported moves towards a lockdown. No one should follow the CDC's anti-science mask mandates. And if you want to shut down federal agencies again, some of which aren't even back to work yet, I will stop every bill coming through the Senate with an amendment to cut their funding if they don't come back to work in person. Local bureaucrats and union bosses, we will not allow you to do more harm to our children again this year. Children are not at any more risk from COVID than they are from the seasonal flu. 
Every adult who works in schools has either had the vaccine or had their chance to get vaccinated. There is no reason for mask mandates, part-time schools, or any lockdown measures. Children are falling behind in school and are being harmed physically and psychologically by the tactics that you have used to keep them from the classroom during the last year. We won't allow it again. If a school system attempts to keep children from full-time in-person school, I will hold up every bill with two amendments, one to defund them and another to allow parents the choice of where the money goes for their child's education. Do I sound fed up to you? That's because I am. I'm not a career politician. I practiced medicine for 33 years. I graduated from Duke Medical School. I've worked in emergency rooms. I've studied immunology and virology. And I ultimately chose to become an eye surgeon. I've been telling everyone for a year now that Dr. Fauci and other public health bureaucrats were not following the science. And I've been proven right time and time again. But I'm not the only one who's fed up. I can't go anywhere these days without people coming up and thanking me for standing up for them, whether I'm at work or at events in Kentucky, at airports, in restaurants, or in stores. People thank me for taking a stand. They thank me for standing up for actual science, for standing up for freedom, for standing against mandates, lockdowns, and bureaucratic power grabs. I think the tide is turning as more and more people are willing to stand up. I see stories from across the country of parents standing up to the unions and school boards. I see brave moms standing up and saying, my kids need to go back to school in person. I see members of Congress refusing to comply with petty tyrant Pelosi. We are at a moment of truth and a crossroads. Will we allow these people to use fear and propaganda to do further harm to our society, economy, and children? Or will we stand together and say, absolutely not, not this time, I choose freedom? Wow. When is the last time you heard anyone in public office speak out like that? And I know, Donald Trump, well, he, he, he would speak out like this. Well, but that was one of the most principled speeches that I've heard, or at least exhortations that I've heard. To stand up and say no to something coming down from officialdom. I'm very encouraged to see Rand Paul do this, although I think this is, there's probably a pretty fair amount of risk in, in doing this. Why do I say this? Well, bear with me because I'm going to do a little armchair uh, you know, psychology here. The people who are so upset that he would say, how, how dare he say that we resist? How dare he say that, that we say no how dare we refuse to go along and, and comply with what uh, public health officials are telling us? You know, I look at Rand Paul, and I look at those who would fall on, on his side of this equation, and I count myself among those who would fall on this side, and it strikes me that, uh, yeah, we understand. There are people who see things differently. People who say, no, I'm scared. I, I don't uh, I don't want to take a chance. We should mask everybody up. We should, we should shut everything down. We've got to stop the spread of this virus. And we will, you know, people like me will acknowledge that and say, yeah, okay, I can see, you know, you have a different viewpoint. But you know what I don't do? I don't with, I don't wish death on them. I don't say, well, I hope you catch COVID and I hope you die. And I hope the last gurgling thing you hear is your family pleading with you. <laughs> but the people who are attacking Rand Paul, many of them do. Don't believe me? Go to Twitter. Look at the comments. I mean, it's, it's like cancer. 
whoever came up with the rule, don't read the comments, that's, that's pretty smart. You know, what's interesting, though, is there is, I, I mean, you have to fight your way through a, a pretty, uh, pretty crazy tangle of media to try to get to, to the truth. You can do it, but it just takes effort. Here's a story that I guarantee you probably haven't heard about, but this is definitely worth sharing. Tom Woods was the one who shared this yesterday in his email to, uh, to his listeners. He says, Iceland. A listener in Iceland shared some information with him, and he says it was looking as if Iceland, one of the world's most heavily vaccinated countries, I don't know what the percentage was, but it was like above 90%, may retreat into the cycle of lockdowns and restrictions of 2020. He says it's not impossible, but that could still happen. But there was a very interesting development over the weekend. As Iceland had a day whose U.S. equivalent would have been 100,000 new cases, state epidemiologist Porofur Guanason, sorry, I butchered his name, is now throwing up his hands. This is their state epidemiologist for Iceland. He says he's disappointed that vaccination has not brought about herd immunity and that the only approach now is to protect vulnerable groups and allow the virus to move through society. We really cannot do anything else. He says, we need to try and vaccinate and better protect those who are vulnerable, but let us tolerate the infection. We need to somehow navigate this way, and we are now in this, not to get too many serious illnesses, so that the hospital system does not collapse, but still try to achieve this herd immunity by letting the virus somehow run. Which it's going to do anyway, by the way. So I don't know, you probably haven't heard much about that, have you? Right? But I, I only share this with you because this, this is not the same. That's just doing nothing. You're surrendering to the virus. The virus doesn't care. And the whole point is, let the virus work its way through the population and let that bring herd immunity. That is how it has been done with previous viruses. Vaccination may help, but it's obviously not keeping up with this. And the number of fully and partially vaccinated people who are now getting and being hospitalized with COVID is a pretty strong indicator of this. Again, this this is different than the narrative that uh, that we're hearing from many of the mainstream sources, which are still fear porn, fear porn. Oh, the cases, hospitals overwhelmed. Oh, it's terrible. You know, but that at, at the root of all that is the message of you've got to comply. You just got to comply. You've got to co- go along with what's going on. I share this with you, not to tell you this is what you have to think, but only to point out that there may be some aspects of this or there may be a perspective that you have not yet been offered. Well, until this show. What you do with this information, that's up to you. But isn't that interesting? You have an epidemiologist who is is admitting that, hey, we can't stop the virus through vaccination alone and even through lockdowns. So why not do what was suggested, oh, I don't know, by the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, which is protect those who are most vulnerable. That would be people over, what, 70, 80 years of age with comorbidities. But let everybody else, the 99.7% of the populace that would survive the virus, let them get it, let them get over it, and let that herd immunity grow. The natural immunity, which again, we don't hear much about. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Final segment of the hour. Got a couple of different stories that I want to share with you. I don't know if if, uh, you have been paying attention to civics, but for a lot of people, the idea that government grows isn't surprising. In fact, they think that's the way it's supposed to be. I guess to me, that's one of the more discouraging attitudes that I encounter in society is people look at uh, a government reaching into every possible area of their life. And at some level, they tell themselves, no, this is this is how it's supposed to be. This is I'm okay with it. That's that's the way it is. And it's frustrating to me because, not that I have all the answers, but I think, why can't they see that there are areas in which government really has no rightful place to be? And I guess we shouldn't be surprised when government grows nonstop. That is in its DNA. But that's exactly why our system of government was designed to limit and check government growth so it wouldn't metastasize like a cancer. Saw a great article from Sheldon Richmond. This is from everythingvoluntary.com, everything-voluntary.com. And Sheldon Richmond says one of the least mysterious things in life is why the government grows. He says the better question is why it ever shrinks. People who devote lots of time to thinking about the importance of individual liberty know that government is inimical to humans flourishing. So they notice every sign of state growth. But most people rarely, if ever, focus on liberty or government per se because they're understandably busy with the usual cares and aspirations of life. Even if they occasionally sense that something ominous is afoot, well, there's little they can do about it. They might as well attend to things that are more under their control. Besides, he says, most people believe what they were brought up to believe by their parents and their teachers that the U.S. government system embodies liberty because the people govern themselves through the representatives they've chosen. And when they complain about the government, their ire is typically directed at specific bad apples, Cuomo, or even a bad regime. They're rarely mad at the system itself. Now, all will be put right when good people replace the bad. But when the replacements occur, he says, we don't see significant reductions in the power and scope of the state. Sheldon Richmond says things are bad enough with domestic policy, but much worse with foreign policy. So the picture is kind of bleak indeed. Meanwhile, the people in power have a general interest in increasing that power, not to mention their wealth and prestige. So with rare exceptions, they are accelerators of, not breaks on, the growth of government power. The public choice school of political economy focuses on the incentives for the growth of government. Sometimes a political figure touts his or her preference for less power in a particular matter, whether it's sincerely or not. But Sheldon Richmond says such a figure usually favors more power in other matters. Over the years, the number of politicians who've actually wanted less government across the board has been depressingly small. Those in power are supported in their quest by, for, for more by an array of private interests who hope to gain by the exercise of that power. Lots of people are unsatisfied with the gains they could make through purely voluntary exchange, so they seek to augment them with the help of politicians and bureaucrats and at the expense of others. Now, these rent seekers may not think of this as violating other people's freedom because they believe, like nearly everyone else, well, this is just what a self-governing people may properly do. It's as though the state were the governing body of a voluntary service organization. Members vote on what policies they want and then go along with the majority decision. That's how most people see the situation. But Sheldon Richmond says, the state is not such an organization. 
It's a force-wielding, wealth-transfer machine with a dash of security services for public appeal. The role of court ideologues, the government schools, and the mass media is to tell the people how good and indispensable the government is. In fact, the state is the consequence of conquest. No one ever explicitly consented to it, and it's impossible to opt out, that is, while staying put, How can anyone withdraw consent never given? And if one cannot consent or cannot not consent, what does it even mean to consent? By the way, he has a link to an excellent essay from Charles Johnson. Can anyone ever consent to the state? So as Thomas Jefferson noted, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. Now, that doesn't mean a specific power can't be rolled back on occasion. We've seen the removal of legal barriers to racial integration, marijuana possession, gay marriage, and other legitimate activities. But despite this, it's hard to see a significant reduction in power in recent times. The Invasive Patriot Act is nearly 20 years old and has been reauthorized more than once. The politicians used the pandemic to justify extraordinary and alarming interference with our liberty. New powers are in the offering, or in the offing rather, such as regulation of social media companies. And I like how he finishes this up. He says, does this mean there's nothing left to do but despair? Well, Sheldon Richmond says, I have no easy answers, but let's hope not. The fight for liberty is the noblest fight. And we must find ways to kindle the love of liberty in others. I really love the way he put that last line too. Because that's, that's really what my goal is each day, is to help kindle that love of liberty in others. And I lose, look, I miss the mark sometimes. Because sometimes I'm pretty wound up over whatever it is I'm talking about. And, and it probably doesn't come across as, wow, man, you really love liberty. And that makes me want to love liberty more. But I just want you to understand, despite of how I may fall short, that is my intention. That's why I share with you what I share with you. One final note here. This is an article from J.D. Tusil from Reason.com. Don't surrender to the pandemic control freaks. Now, look, some people are going to have a knee-jerk reaction. Well, now you're calling names. You call them control freaks. But I, I think this is one of those cases where we have to call it what it is. And, you know, if, if, if it makes you feel better, people with control issues. That does sound more diplomatic than control freaks. But it doesn't change the dynamic of what's going on. And that is, there are a lot of people with control issues who are working very hard to impose state control that is backed by force on the people around them. J.D. Tusil asks, when exactly do we get to return to normal life? Is it when every single person is vaccinated? Is it when lockdowns finally demonstrate any effectiveness at fighting COVID-19? Or when we've driven all our kids nuts and small businesses bankrupt with restrictions? When disease is completely eradicated around the time the sun sputters out? Or will it be when the pajama class is finally bored with lording it over the rest of us and decides to come up for air? It's a question requiring an answer as our lords and masters show every inclination to once again tighten the screws to address a never-ending public health emergency. He points out that a year and a half into the pandemic, every American 12 and older who cares to be vaccinated against COVID-19 has had the opportunity to get a shot. That's important because all of the available vaccines are extremely effective at reducing the dangers of infection for their recipients. 
That's according to the Centers for Disease Control. All authorized COVID-19 vaccines demonstrated high efficacy. That's 89% against COVID-19, severe enough to require hospitalization. In the clinical trials, no participants who received a COVID-19 vaccine died from COVID-19. That's about as much assurance as you can ask of a world that offers no guarantees of safety, says J.D. Tusil. Epidemiologists have warned for months COVID-19 is probably a permanent part of our lives, kind of like the flu. So we need to learn to tolerate it as one risk among many. Dr. Michael Sweat, a public health expert with the Medical University of South Carolina, says the pandemic seems to be shifting to an endemic situation, meaning the virus could remain a constant presence. Well, we just have to figure out how to live with it, he says. So J.D. Tusil says we can get on with our lives, right? After all, we've had a lot of digging out to do. Millions of children lost a year in education and struggled with mental health issues. Jobs and businesses evaporated as the world sheltered in place, usually by command of the powers that be. And fundamental human liberty took a body blow from which it may never recover when the political class took advantage of public fear to expand its power, not just in traditionally authoritarian countries, but in nominally liberal ones as well. Freedom House has observed, as COVID-19 spread during the year, governments across the democratic spectrum repeatedly resorted to excessive surveillance, discriminatory restrictions on freedoms like movement and assembly, and arbitrary or violent enforcement of such restrictions by police and non-state actors. And as J.D. Tusil points out, worse, we sacrificed liberty, prosperity, and our children's sanity for little in the way of good reason. He says, COVID-19 has been an unpleasant ordeal for the entire planet, but perhaps not so awful as the policies inflicted on us in the name of public health. It's time to move beyond pandemic control, or pandemic panic, rather, and to rebuild our prosperity. Raise our kids. Reclaim our freedom. And he says, if the control freaks don't like that, well, they're another affliction that we can do without. Because in a free society, people have the right to make their own risk assessments, even if others don't approve. And the rest of us should get to live our lives without limiting ourselves because of the decisions made by others. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.